Hi, my name is Aisha Small. Thanks for downloading this episode of the Youth and Education podcast, where I interview interesting guests to explore developments in education, research and policy that affect young people, primarily in the UK. This podcast is brought to you by the Youth Think and Action Tank, LKM Co. Hello, welcome to episode 10 of the Youth and Education podcast. In this episode, I talked to Jeff Barton, uh, who is the General Secretary of the Association of School and College Leaders. We talk about a lot of uh, very interesting things in this discussion. Obviously, we talk about leadership. Um, we talk about the difference between a MAT CEO and a head teacher. We talk about books and reading and also what Jeff has learned via his own extensive writing for various publications. We talk about music and Jeff's love of learning. It's a really interesting discussion, which I think, which I hope you'll get a lot out of and you'll enjoy as much as I do. Enjoy. LKM co-believe society should ensure all children and young people receive the support they need to make a fulfilling transition to adulthood. Find us at lkmco.org. Can we listen to it now? All right, good afternoon. I'm sitting here with Mr. Jeff Barton. <laughs> How are you doing, Jeff? You're right. Very well, thank you. And this takes me back to my radio days. You know, the career I never quite managed to have. Yeah. But uh, I, th- I think I look better on radio, so um, good to be here. <laughs> so what is it that drew you to radio? Like, what's the kind of... We've just been having a chat about radio and general geekery. What mm. is it that, you know, that you fell in love with about radio? Uh, well, this will not be the answer you expected. It was Noel Edmonds, um, because he was the... <laughs> sorry, you just choked on your tea. <laughs> he, was, <laughs> he was the breakfast DJ on Radio 1 when I was a teenager, and um, he, you know, it's hard, hard to imagine from what people see of Noel Edmonds now, because he's associated with television game shows and stuff, but he was an extraordinarily creative DJ who played around with sound a lot, played around with voices, so he'd have characters arriving at the at the studio and this kind of thing and um, he just made radio come alive so you didn't listen for the songs I, I never listened for the songs you listened for what was between the songs which was both the material he put there and the uh, and the jingles I've been a big jingle fan for oh, many jingle years fan. it's nice knowing Jeff jingles are his claim to fame yeah, so let's not, let's nice not really not get into that because the regulars will think here he goes again <laughs> oh my god <laughs> So, um, Jeff, we're sitting here in, uh, I always say Askell. Is it Askell? Yeah. yeah. This okay. is the nerve centre. So we're sitting here in Askell, in the nerve centre, the heart of England, Leicester. Mm. Um, tell me about the journey in your career, or even like your life, to get to this point. Uh, right, OK. Well, I went, I went to the, the whole lot. So I, I, I went through a pretty unacademic education and was pretty unimpressive, frankly, so that when I got my... GCSE results, there were O-levels in those days. My mother saw them, I got five, I think I got five, four of which were grade C, one was grade B or something like that. Uh, And my mother looked at them and she said, uh, pithily, it has to be said, failure. 
Uh, and that, and she was right. I mean, it was, for, for someone who was brought up in the background I was brought up in, actually, it was a pretty mediocre set of results for the time. But it, it, it was because I really wanted to go into the aforementioned radio career. Mm. That wasn't going to happen. So I drifted into a sixth form, had a great teacher, loved English, went and did a degree in Lancaster, loved it, decided I wanted to do what my great teacher, Roy Sampson, had done. Asked where's the best place to go and train to be a teacher. The people there said Leicester is the place. So I trained in Leicester, just around the corner from here. And then I went as a fledgling NQT to Leeds for five years. Got promoted to second in English. I went to York as a head of English. Did that for seven years. Got onto the leadership team briefly there. Then went to Suffolk as a deputy. And then 15 years as a head teacher in Suffolk. So that's, in a nutshell, the kind of life in school. What made your English teacher so good? What he did distinctively in the sixth form is he took complicated stuff that I'd never seen before. So we were reading a couple of Shakespeare's, we were reading I think Alexander Pope and you know the kind of language and literature and culture I had never come across at all and he made it simple but not too simple so he had this ability to help to open a window into it but for you to then be the person who is exploring that world. And I think that, particularly in an age of spoon-feeding, the, the really skillful teacher knows which questions to ask and when to shut up and when to listen to what you're saying and when to say, yes, you're right, and when to say, think about it again and so on. And he was, looking back, an, an, extra, an incredibly skillful, gifted teacher who just loved being an English teacher. And uh, I still see him. He comes and visits once a year and he's nice. been, a, been a really big um, influence on me. It's interesting because you mentioned about the role of listening in, you know, a great teacher. I think that's something that's not often, it's not spoken about enough. It's often a lot of what the teacher does and how they impart things. But not that much about the need for silence sometimes and space to listen. Um, And equally, you know, the same thing in leadership. It's not really spoken about the importance of listening. So in your view, like, what would you say, what place has listening played in your career? Well, I'm deaf in one ear, so it's been pretty important that the other ear has continued to work, it has to be said. But, you know, Graham Nuttall wrote what I think is one of the most interesting books about education, which is called The Secret Lives of Learners. And what he says in that is a teacher will teach one lesson to one group and teach what they think is the same lesson to another group the next day, and it'll go completely differently. And he says, you therefore have to be attuned to what the group's needs are in front of you, and you have to be customising what you're doing according to the way it's going and that involves listening to what they're saying, listening to the answers and you know the combination of different people over the years I've uh, listened to in person or read, Dylan Williams of this world and others, all of them talk about the importance of asking fewer but better questions, listening to the answer in order to decide where you go next and I've, I've just always loved that and I love that in interviews, I tend to ask the fewest questions of people on interview because I want to listen to the answers and make a decision. But also, I always loved in leadership team meetings, and it used to drive some people mad, lobbing a number of big questions in and testing our principles. What do we believe about such and such? And letting people have sometimes quite strenuous arguments about things in order that we could then say, we've hammered out the principles, here's what we think, here's what our values are, here's therefore what we will do. What kind of, give an example of a question. Oh, so, for example, if there was a debate about should we, should we change the curriculum because there might be a course which is going to help the school do well in performance tables, let's say that, and periodically that, that kind of thing would come up. And, of course, it would be very easy to say, oh, well, we never discussed that because of the moral high ground, we wouldn't. 
But we also know that a lot of schools did very well because they introduced those courses. And in some cases, what they would say is they introduced those courses because they were right for those students. And so I always wanted to not dismiss the idea of changing those things. But equally, I wanted to make sure we, what, whatever we did, we did it through principles. And so reviewing the curriculum, should we go down the e-back line? Should we say that every child should do history or geography in a language? The view we took was, no, we shouldn't. Why, why should we? We thought it was a form of snobbery to say that history and geography are more important than sociology and psychology, which we offered. And the governor supported us, and the parents supported us. But I could say with absolute clarity to parents... This is what we stand for. We think that you're the person who should make the decision about your child's education. We will not do it because of the performance tables, which is where EBAC ultimately drives you. So that would be around the curriculum, the kinds of issues where my role, I think, was partly to lob in the big questions, to give space to the leadership team to debate those questions, and then to try and find a way of synthesising that where you could and say, here's what we appear to be saying, here's what the principles are, so let's do this. What about... Um, I don't know, so supposing a school leader is listening and then they think, but what happens if someone says something that you really don't like or that you disagree with or the direction you really don't want to go? What would your be response? Well, my background as an English teacher is that for 15 years I've been coaching debating teams over the years and the heart of that is that what you're doing is you're constantly looking at arguments for and against and actually the more you look at arguments for and against the more you ultimately come up with a more nuanced position of what you stand for and it's usually not a polarised we believe this is entirely true and this is entirely not true it's that there are elements of that and, and uh, that we will accept and elements of that which probably for our context here we're going to reject and I think the art of chairing is probably to make everyone feel at the very least you've listened to what they've said and acknowledged what they've said but frankly, the view I then took was that I'm, I'm the head and I'm going to take the view. And the most controversial decision was one of the most trivial, in a sense. And it was the, the view I took after five years in, in a large comprehensive that we should turn all the bells off, right? So, but People such an like obvious that. thing. Such an obvious <laughs> thing. This is kind of 10, 12 years ago. And uh, we had such heated decisions in the leadership team. People will think we're in the Bronx here by the number of ambulances and police that. cars. I was just thinking, another one comes, we'll stop yes. it next time. This is Leicester. All is calm. Everything is fine. But we have a hospital nearby. That's all. Life goes on. Um, uh, and so with that uh, debate about should we turn the bells off, uh, I, I just finally got to the point of saying, look, I'm, we, I'm sorry, folks. I'm just going to do it. So we're going to turn the bells off and let's see what happens. They knew that the buck rested with me, so if it, if it didn't, didn't work out, I was the one who'd take the flat. We went with it. It happens in that case, all was fine. The world didn't collapse by turning the bells off. <laughs> Kids were actually on time rather more than they had been previously. The staff perhaps weren't, but nevertheless, culturally, it sent out a really important message that we were no longer going to be a kind of Victorian factory mentality. And it was a, it was a good decision, I think. My critics would probably say I talk more than I listen, which may be the case, um, but... Um, I think they would. I'd like to think they'd acknowledge that actually, I, I, I do listen to things. I do, I do learn from reading a lot, and I do learn from listening to other people, particularly people who've got an expertise that I haven't. I like nothing more than, you know, whether it's the, the great TED talk or whether it's reading the book by the specialist on on an obscure topic. I, I guess I like learning stuff. So um, on the way in, we were talking about podcasts and so on. So mm. on the way in on the train. I also now big into audiobooks as well for the same mm. reasons as podcasts. Mm. And I was listening to The Magic of Thinking Big. And I actually think it might be one of the most interesting leadership books that isn't a leadership book that I've read. What's the kind of, in terms of 
what's the book that's most impacted you in terms of your career? Um, Even if it's not obviously a career book. I don't know if there's one. I mean, I read a lot and I read a lot about a lot and so therefore synthesising one book that's had effect. There's one sitting over there which took me by surprise. It was, uh, it's called The Social Animal. It's down there by David Brooks, who's a writer, I think, uh, for the Washington Post or something. And he essentially uses this slightly bizarre, slightly tricksy double narrative where he follows two people, two children. One is from a very poor Washington background, one is from a middle-class background. And what he essentially does is to track what happens in their lives and to show how, if you come from a middle-class privileged background, things fall into place for you. The the risk of all of this is stereotypes, but kind of go with it. And what he does with the other child, both made up, is he looks at the way the interventions of teachers and friends and other things can be transformational. So my background is literacy. So, for example, the child who who doesn't come from a bookish background, whose teacher says, we're going to be studying Greek myths, I want you to read this. There's someone in it called, I think it's Odysseus, I, there's something about Odysseus that reminds me of you. And what, what he then does is to draw out what literacy research tells us, that you can have the best library in the world, but if you're a kid from a background with no books, put, put me in a library, you'll simply alienate me further from the notion of reading. Tell me that there's something in this book which is a bit like me, and say, stick with it for 50 pages. Really stick with it, because I think you'll really enjoy it. So you're modelling how we read and how we build resilience. That, I think, was a really interesting book. And what it's done is to give me some insights, which I use when I talk about literacy on on conferences and so on. Um, And whilst I wouldn't say it's necessarily the book that changed my life, I do think it's a book that gave me an absolute sense that when I talk about literacy, I'm essentially talking about social justice. That's it. It's the difference between the word rich and the word poor. Um, I think the most, you know, you're talking about unexpected books. So the most unexpected book that I've read recently that did have kind of educational or just made me think about things was um, a book about music so it was a book about the history of grime um, and it's written by an English teacher actually uh, called Jeffrey Boyake and what is grime? Grime's like a music style basically so it's a music style which is I guess it can be described as a mixture of if you're not used to hearing it something that sounds a bit like hip-hop but also dance and is influence like an industrial sound sounding uh, music with rapping over the top I guess that's how you describe it mm. um, and it's very very popular in kind of it's very popular with young people all over the country now but it originated in London mm. so he is really into that music style and he's talked about it but via that he does it via a track list you'd like it actually the concept you'd like um, and he takes you through different songs that he thinks are seminal in the history of grime um, up to the present day and then weaves it in with kind of black masculinity as well, um, and kind of the history of, of, of black people or urban styles in the UK, I guess. It's very interesting. I think there's something about that kind of book. As we, were, we were talking before we started regarding about Malcolm Gladwell, for example. Now, his book, Blink, let's say, which is about first impressions and how important first impressions are, he does through a series of, of different examples. So, for example, he, he looks in educational terms at the ability of students in the US to be shown a clip of teachers teaching with the sound turned down where they ask them to make a judgment about the quality of the teaching and what they find is that it takes about 10 seconds for those kids to make a very accurate judgment the the kids are then taught by those teachers and the correlation is 95% they then retest them 
because they find that 10 seconds is too long, they can probably make, it, make a, a 95% accurate judgment after three seconds. Now, that, that suggests that what they're looking at is how does the teacher open the door and so on. My, my point is, it, what he does is he illuminates a concept with different examples. That happens to be teachers, then he does tennis coaches. He just goes through a range of different things. And I love books which kind of, he calls it thin slicing, I think, where you slice into different aspects of life and you illuminate it. And I, I just have always found that kind of nice, book yeah. really interesting. Matthew Syed's quite interesting. Matthew Syed, exactly. Black yeah. box thinking and, and all also, that um, you know, like Freakonomics. I was thinking when you said about that, Precisely. Freakonomics. Those, There's a whole those. sequence of those. And that my, my bookshelves continue to be full of those. And I always come out of them thinking, I wish that had just been a side of A4. Because quite often you kind of synthesise everything on them and think, okay, there's one point there. But they tell a story at the same time. Yeah, it's a style which, uh, you know, as a kind of nerdy English teacher, I've liked, uh, and it's called um, the New Journalism, which is where you build a scene uh, and you, you have your opening paragraph, usually called a drop paragraph, in order to say... Thomas Schaffner didn't realise that day was going to be different. He opened it, and it gives you masses of detail, and it draws you into a story before you then start to get a sense of an underpinning philosophy behind it. It's great. It's mm, interesting. It's cool. It's a bit like how they do, I don't know, at the moment we're watching House of Cards, um, or, like, you know, American yeah. uh, serials, yeah, yeah. and it, they kind of tell you a bit about it, and you're thinking, oh, what's going to happen? And then suddenly yeah. you go into the... That is correct. And then you find out it's happened. Correct. And I'm a big, I love House of Cards. House of Cards is the dark side of politics. I particularly love... The West Wing, which I'm re-watching. Just so I loved The West Wing for the first few seasons, and then afterwards it got a bit boring. Is well, that terrible to say? No, because Aaron Sorkin left after oh, Series okay, 4. That's why. <laughs> and, it, and so the gears changed very radically, and for two seasons it's a disaster. And then suddenly the writing team get behind it, bring new characters in, and it rejuvenates itself. Yeah. So you, you need to get to the end of it. So really. I think what happened was we bought the box set, because everyone was like, you've got to watch The West Wing watched it and it's like oh this is quite good and then suddenly it's like what are people talking about this is horrific and then yeah, it didn't yeah. it, it didn't survive the cut after yeah. that so um we've just been you know talking a lot about books and writing and stuff like that you're former English teacher also extensive writer yourself um you know how's the writing process helped you in terms of in a, as a, in a in a professional capacity or just in general how does the writing process help you well uh, as em forced said uh, how do i know what i think until i've written it down and I think that I think through writing stuff. Sometimes that's just making doodly kind of notes, which is why I always, always got a notepad. But actually, it has been through writing articles, and, and particularly recently what newspapers like The Guardian and the TS asked me to do is will I do rapid turnaround articles on things? They like, they like that, and I like the challenge of that. And the most extraordinary one was after the Manchester bombing, where uh, I was speaking at a conference, and the TS phoned and said... Could you just write about what what will school leaders across the country be doing now if, if their children have been affected? And I had 20 minutes to write something, and I, I wrote, I don't know, 400 words. Uh, I just sat at a coffee table in the hotel lobby and wrote it. And so it was very much written from the heart. And part of me was thinking, can I do this? This is difficult. I've got to get the tone right. It's so important. It doesn't seem sensationalist. Will it reassure? Will it feel as if I'm just kind of seizing the moment to write something egotistical? And it worked, and that, uh, and so I guess part of what is happening is I like writing stuff because it helps me to think, what am I thinking? And I like writing stuff because I like the finished product. I don't like the writing process. I like having written stuff. And I look back at some of the stuff I've written in the past, uh, and it's a funny experience having written things, say, 10 years ago, and you think, was that really me? Mm. And there's a slightly different feel, a different tone to it, and you've seen how your style's developed. And I guess 
writing holds a mirror up to your own ego in a way and you spot the way you've developed and changed and I, I couldn't imagine not writing stuff and it's not because I'm driven by wanting to publish loads of stuff I don't think I'll ever write another book for example I, don't, I couldn't think who would read it but I do think I will continue to write articles because what they do is they just sometimes illuminate an issue and people say that's what I'm thinking or indeed that's what I'm not thinking yeah it's interesting that one um, so you're clearly really passionate about the power of English, literacy, mm. you know, your subjects and teaching in general. So can you describe what was behind your decision to leave schools? You know, you've been a successful head teacher for a number of years mm. um, and then to join our school. Well, I'd been um, a head for 15 years and I'd taught throughout that. And I just had this feeling that having gone through quite a lot of change with the school, that the school needed someone new to come into it. And I, I just sensed it. And I knew from both the literature and experience that one of the worst things for school is a school leader who gets past their sell-by date. And people are saying, yeah, she used to be good, but she's lost her touch kind of thing. And I didn't want to be tainted by the sense of people saying I'd lost interest in the school. And I know that if I had continued to dutifully go to parents' evenings, I went to every concert that was ever on at our school. If that ever became dutiful, I knew that my heart wasn't in it. And I was leaving the school when it was doing pretty well. Debating, which was my big thing, was in strong place. We brought new staff in. It was time to go. So whatever was going to happen, I was going to leave the school. And I was then either going to go and do kind of literacy consultancy and I would be wheeled out in schools where I talked to staff and go and work with them. And that looked like the trajectory. Um, but I had been a member of our school council for about nine years. Um, I was being encouraged by a number of people to say, why don't you throw your hat into the ring? So although ASCL had nominated its preferred candidate through its um, selection procedures... Which wasn't you. Which wasn't me. Mm. Um, and although it had never previously had an election process... I was encouraged by a lot of people that the, the feeling was that our school traditionally had been led by someone who had been a school leader and I would have those skills and qualities. So I decided I would throw my hat into the ring. It, it triggered an election that was pretty controversial at the time. It was a big issue both for me personally and for the association. It could have damaged the reputation of the association potentially. It didn't. It actually, I think, probably strengthened us overall. Uh, and, I, and I got a good good victory and... Even those people who were hugely sceptical and probably cross uh, what I started off, I think have seen that I've done it because I love Askell and because I think school leaders need to have a fairly astringent voice at times, which are fairly difficult, in which we articulate on their behalf the pleasures of the job, but also the frustrations of the job, and to try and influence to get the frustrations reduced. So can I ask you about that? I used to be an Askell member, and I remember thinking, what do Askell do? Like, mm. compared to... I'm not the most strident person ever, but compared to NUT, it felt like it was very much a status quo organisation. Um, I remember talking to a friend of mine, it's like, yeah, school just feels like a hold the status quo kind of thing, which is not necessarily bad, but it felt in tone very different to something like the NUT. Um, so I'm just wondering, you know, what are your views about me saying something like that? And it kind of feels like it ties in a little bit of what you were just saying. Yeah, I mean, I think, I think there, was, there was that view, and, that, and some of the people who were encouraging me were saying the same Think indeed as a council member, I was myself saying, why don't we stand up and say no to certain things more? Now, I think the only thing we have to remember is that actually through quite a lot of recent history, Askell was working with a Labour government who were investing a lot of money in education and who were giving a lot of status to school leaders. You didn't need to be the ranty man on the corner <laughs> for that kind of thing. You, you, you could actually have significant influence 
And the trouble with having significant influence is that that can look as if you're being compliant. And it could be that actually you're getting the best on behalf of your members. The fact is, though, from 2010, we had a very different government and the tone was very different and the unions were stigmatised there. And it might well be that Askell hadn't adjusted quickly enough to that. Might be. Um, and certainly, as I was watching the groundswell of fury about school funding, which was coming from unlikely places like East Cheshire and West Sussex and, and other places, it did feel to me like there was a mismatch between what was being said on the ground and what was being said. And since there was an opportunity to, to put my money where my mouth was, that's what led me to do it. Now, I think people will have, have noted that what we haven't been doing is banging the table and shouting and so on and so forth, but we have been articulating a number of principles very clearly on funding, on teacher recruitment, on stability in the system, on less reform, please, and so on and so forth. And I think we've, we've captured the mood of that so far. Um, the, the, the proof of the pudding will be in how much we can influence yeah. things so that we do have less change directed from government. But I think the early signs are good, and I think the early signs from Ofsted and from Ofqual is they recognise that system leadership, if it's going to mean anything, should mean that they stand back and they let the system try to improve our schools. It definitely seems to be what the mood music is at the moment, so we'll have to wait and see, I guess. Yeah. Um, so there's a couple of questions coming up um, in terms of what you just said. You once kind of, in some of your writing, described uh, okay, being ahead as a vi- being a visible embodiment of the school's values. You're not ahead anymore, but you know, you're General Secretary of, of ASCO. What would you, how do you, how would you say that you embody what you feel are the values? Well, Askell has a really good uh, vision statement, which has served me very well in my three months in the post so far. And I realise actually it served me probably in my 32 years as a teacher before that. And the vision statement is, we speak on behalf of members, we act on behalf of children. Now that's a pretty helpful point of principle, because it means if anybody asks me anything, I think, okay, first of all, is this going to be helpful to our members? And underpinning that, will it help them to help teachers to help children? And if it won't, then we will question it and suggest an alternative way of doing things. And I look back and think that as head, whatever staff would have said about me, uh, and there might have been many critical comments, they would, I think, have said he absolutely did what was right for the children. Now, not in a soppy kind of way. I was fairly tough with kids. They had to behave and all the rest of it. But ultimately, the decisions we made in that school were about making sure those children got the best life chances. And the real proof of that is when you have to take a tough decision because someone is being either lazy or they're not preparing properly or their behaviour management's not good enough and you have to have a difficult conversation and you lose sleep sometimes about those conversations, particularly early on, and I always tackled those issues. I, I knew that one day I had to look back and think, did I turn any blind eyes? And I didn't. So I think there is a correlation between the way I tried to work as a school leader, the way I'm trying to work now, not that I'm having to tackle lots of na- naughty people. <laughs> naughty school <here>. leaders. <laughs> uh, but, it, but it is being driven by a strong sense of what should I be saying on behalf of our 19,000 or so members and will this help the children, four to five million children who we basically are the gatekeepers for? And I think that's a pretty useful touchstone for how we work. So the... Um the thing that I'm thinking about is, when I think of ASCOL, I think about you know, school leaders, so people and senior leadership teams. Um, but obviously there's a new landscape now with MAT CEOs. So does, does ASCOL also represent them? And what are your views about the place? I mean, obviously they're here to say, but how 
well, firstly, how people are prepared to be Matt CEOs, for, ex- for example. There's a couple of questions in there. Yeah. Well, I think you're right, first of all, that we've got a changed landscape of leadership now. And I think some of the old boundaries have blurred. So I think the, the, the nature of being a primary school leader compared to being a secondary school leader has in many cases blurred because if you're part of a multi-academy trust or an all-through, then you're sharing the responsibility. And frankly, that is a good thing because that divide at uh, year six into year seven has been incredibly unhelpful for children as much as for those leaders. So we're delighted to see more and more primary leaders are now joining us in ASCO. And you're also right that traditionally, when you became a head your next step was to become another head in another school, perhaps a bigger school. Now, for some people, not for all, the idea that you're now going to oversee two, three, 15 schools and you're going to use a different skill set. And part of the talent of that is to know when to step back and to leave your head of school or head teacher to be able to have autonomy. That's something which I think the system is learning. And one of the things I'm wanting us to do is to learn and share more expertise on that because we've got some seriously powerful players who are running multi-academy trusts and I'm not sure we've yet shared their experience and insights and one of them said to me so for for example our new president Carl Ward runs a multi-academy trust in Stoke-on-Trent which is incredibly impressive but as he says to me this is not the same as being a head teacher at all and I think a lot of people applying for it would say so what is it involved in And and therefore one of the things I'm thinking we're trying to do as ASCL is to illuminate the modern landscape of leadership and we can do that because we've got a very strong training Um, good communications arm which is telling the story of that and frankly we've got an extraordinary network of nearly 19,000 people where we ought to be able to get the more seasoned veterans mentoring those who are just joining leadership wherever it happens to be. I still take the view that if you are a head or a chief executive officer you are a leader of learning that's ultimately your responsibility and if you have a good business leader, ASCO represents business leaders, Uh, then actually they should be doing the real financial stuff for you and you should be asking the right questions and holding them accountable. But again, that comes down to training. What are the right questions? How do you hold them accountable? And again, I think we've got a level of expertise in our organisation where through our conferences and courses we want to make sure that people are truly skilled up if they are going to take the step from headship into chief executive role. Mm. Well, earlier we were talking about teacher supply. So, you know, there's a fairly widely reported leadership crisis in schools, particularly particular types of schools. I'm just wondering, um, which you've also written about, so what are, your, what are the reasons in your view? Well, we're recording this on the day when we're finding out that for the eighth year in a row, teachers are not going to get more than 1%. Uh, and I think there is a correlation between pay. I mean, teachers have, over the past seven years, seen something like a 14 percent reduction in their pay. Yeah, but heads in, I don't know, the bit of the country I'm from, heads can earn six-figure salaries. Oh yeah, so there, so there will be some, some head teachers, but if, if, if we're looking at why is it we haven't got a pipeline of people who are coming in to be teachers, the, the, the one is that, as the STRB have reported yesterday, there are many professions which are paying better uh, than teaching is. Teaching is now the sixth lowest paid What's of the... What's STRB, please, Jeff? So that's the School Teachers Review Body, so it's the uh, supposedly independent group which makes recommendations and they give, they do make recommendations but it's an incredibly bleak report and it's bleak because they say there isn't enough money for us to be able to recruit teachers. Now recruitment is part of the issue. We think there is a similarly large issue around retention. You lose around 40% of teachers from the profession after about four years or so. It's a terrible indictment of teaching if people who have 
started to build their skills up and their expertise are now fleeing the classroom. So our view is that we need to persuade Justin Greening that the only responsibility he's got beyond funding is to try to do everything we can to help us to articulate people coming into and staying in teaching as a profession. Um, and that is partly finances, it's partly workload, and I think as school leaders we should be doing more in terms of teachers' workload. I think it's also us telling the story of teaching a bit better, and I think we should stop relying on centrally produced advertising campaigns, and we should ourselves start talking about the genuine joy that there is of doing a job, even on its bad days, where you can see that one or two children in one or two lessons have suddenly gained something that they wouldn't have got otherwise, and I think there's something really powerful about mm. that. So that's kind of teaching in general, and then what about going further through the pipeline into leadership, because you know, there are some places that can't recruit, recruit teachers, for example. There are. I mean, there's a huge leadership crisis. I think I'd just b- before doing that, I'd make the point that what we do need is a teaching strategy whereby teachers who love teaching are rewarded for being teachers. So I don't think there ought to be an inevitability that if you're a great English teacher, you then have to become a head of English and you then have to become assistant head. I think that that has been a bit unhelpful. And what it's led to is a school system where we inevitably end up over-managing and under-leading because we simply have to put too much management in there. And ultimately, if we have loads of great teachers who just love teaching, with lead practitioners working with them, we could have less management overall. And school leaders who are simply setting the direction of the school, dealing with the naughty children from time to time, and actually leaving teachers to it. And that will sound idealistic to some people, but actually it's the way that lots of countries work. But wasn't that supposed to be the advanced skills route? Because that was what, that's it originally was. what I wanted to do. I had no intention of becoming a school leader. I wanted to be an advanced skills teacher. Um, and then that route kind of got scrapped, but kind of kept, I guess, because loads of people do need practitioners. Yes, I, I, I always thought it had, it had the makings of, of being a really good scheme. I'm not sure the, uh, the, the nomenclature helped in the terminology. Uh, that the being called an advanced skills teacher sometimes made people feel kind of self-conscious or made other people think, oh, who does she think she is coming into my lesson telling me how to do things? But that was never really the philosophy. It was about how do you reward the best teacher and leave them in there, both helping people in their current school and people beyond their school. In terms of leadership, you're absolutely right. How do we encourage more people into leadership? And that's part of the job of ASCL and the NAHT, I think, that we need to show what are the pleasures of leadership what are the freedoms of leadership? And one of the things I'm talking about in my talks, which I've learned from the independent sector, is let's be bolder in our leadership in saying no to certain things and doing what's right for our young people. So they say no to who, like in terms of government or centralised? Yeah. yeah, so if, you know, certain initiatives, if they're, not going to, if they're not going to help that child in that classroom, that teacher to help them, why don't we just say no to it? Why, why, for example, why do we allow such credence to Ofsted that given that 89% of our schools are good or outstanding, why is there such an extraordinary level of fear mm. about Ofsted? Why don't we stop quoting Ofsted? Why don't we stop having banners outside our school which says anything about Ofsted? Why don't we put Ofsted back in the box on behalf of the 11% of people who aren't yet good or outstanding? <clears throat> I think Amanda Spielman, n- newly in post at Ofsted, is doing some interesting reform, and I think we will see much better Ofsted. But we will help that if we start to show that it's not quite as important as maybe we've been saying in the past. And that's what I mean by bolder yeah. leadership. And I think that's really important for 
people who benefit from it as well. Yeah. So one of the things that I realised as a class teacher initially it was, you know, you want to be good, you want to be outstanding. And then as soon as I started getting outstandings, I was like, actually, this doesn't matter. <laughs> and it, it doesn't matter whether I'm an outstanding teacher, it matters that my classes learn. Correct. Um, and it's like whatever I need to do to make my yeah. classes learn is what is required, whether someone's sitting there or not. And that totally. was so freeing to do that. And I used to have a, an agreement with the staff at, uh, at King Edwards that we would never start a sentence because Ofsted says or... As Ofsted says, then we will. And if you did, then you had to remove a layer of clothing. <laughs> did anybody you know, end up naked? Focus <laughs> the mind. <laughs> so why is Mr. Martin walking around in his socks? <laughs> Related to leadership shortages and so on, I don't know if you're aware of movements like Women Ed and BAME Ed mm. to work on diversity in school leadership. So movements that I'm very passionate about. Um, I'm just wondering, you know, what's your view about these movements? Oh, I mean, hugely needed. It'll come across to some people as ironic that there's a white, middle-aged man talking about the, the importance of it. But Anna I didn't Cole, say anything, sir. Anna Cole, <laughs> who is our specialist in parliamentary work and takes the lead in terms of diversity, and all the team here know that we, we owe it as an association to the profession and to young people that we put role models into leadership who don't look like me. And, and, yep. and people will have to... Uh, judge me by whether we are able to do that but we are absolutely determined that at the moment the terrible logjam that there is for women and from people from different ethnic backgrounds which gets worse the further up you go through the profession has to be undone because otherwise at the very least the message we're sending out to those people is that you are not going to be successful in school leadership in our current system so Anna and I and the whole team here absolutely committed to that and what I'm hoping we will see as we move through the coming years is whether it's at the presidential level of ASCL, whether it's in terms of breaking some of the log jams in terms of people moving to senior posts elsewhere that we start to demonstrate that actually we're moving into a, a different world. Yeah because um, you know on my notes I put ASCL board <laughs> question mark mm. um, which I think is a reasonable thing to mm. ask. Mm. Um, okay, so no it's interesting because you, you mentioned that if you, if you would come to ASCO conference in March, what you would have seen in terms of the speakers and the panels is men were outnumbered by women for the first time. And you had on every panel female speakers as well as male speakers. And the reason for that is Sean Carr, who's been our president this year, who's been an incredible role model, I think, for a lot of people, women and men, uh, was absolutely determined that that was going to be symbolically there, yeah. visibly there. Uh, and that's something we now won't turn back on. No, it's good because I was talking to a colleague of mine about all-male panels recently and I have to say I've been asked to speak on a couple of panels recently and um, it's been good. The panel has been more diverse than the audience in some respects, which yeah. has been hilarious. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, and I'd wonder, I wondered your views, you know, you taught in Suffolk and you mentioned that your area was, you know, fairly monocultural, mm. that kind of thing. Um, my current school is in Hertfordshire and it's uh, fairly monocultural. I, my teaching career was in, originally in London and often what people will say is, that, yeah, we totally get why leadership teams need to be more diverse in London or Manchester or wherever it is because it should reflect the school community there. But they don't seem to think it's a massive deal in places where it doesn't reflect the school community. Mm. So I was wondering what your views are about that. Yeah, well, I always took the view from, from 20 years in Suffolk that it was more important for us in Suffolk than anywhere else. And it was a bit like, I remember um, be, being in an Ofsted once where somebody asked a question about multiculturalism. Uh, this is in Suffolk. And, and hearing someone say oh well this is Suffolk multiculturalism isn't important and I remember interjecting it, that's the opposite it's the opposite 
It's more important because if you've got youngsters who aren't seeing people of different faiths, different backgrounds, different races, different gender, different sexuality and so on, how on earth are we preparing them for a modern world? And in Suffolk, what it meant we did at King Edward's is we had a, a strand of internationalism which meant that we were partnering with schools all over the world because we wanted those youngsters in Suffolk to realise, particularly because the East of England was always the gateway through trade mm. to the Far East and to other places, we wanted them to see that you are going to be working alongside and competing against people who may not look like you, speak like you, but inside they are like you. And we, we put a huge emphasis on that. And I think in the role I'm in now, which is to do with developing school leadership, we need to do precisely the same, and that needs to happen in Hertfordshire, in Suffolk, in Northumberland, yeah, in, in all kinds in of places, as much as yeah. it does in, in Brent or Hounslow. Yeah, yeah thank you very much. Um, right, so, Jeff, I know our time's coming to a close. I've got a couple of questions, and then we'll wrap up. So my final, well, penultimate question is about research. So I kind of work for an organisation where research is mm. pretty big, um, and we try and use it to impact what practitioners do, what school leaders do, or you know, system leaders. So what's your view about the prominence of research in schools and how useful it can be for school leaders? Yeah, I think it's hugely important and has been underrated. And when we were putting together on my first day, actually, our ASCO manifesto, uh, we put down as our third out of five principles that any educational policy should be informed by evidence rather than by anecdote or by kind of instinctive views of things. That really ought to be the same all the way across the education system. And I think that's different from saying every teacher should be a researcher. I think that actually takes you into a cul-de-sac because I think what you can end up with is half-baked research because teachers aren't necessarily the best people to do research. I mean, there are some who probably are. My, my point is, there are a lot of people who are doing some good quality research there. One of the things Alison Peacock, I think, is going to be able to do uh, with the Chartered College is to find a way of getting that into the bloodstream of the school system Yeah, I'm better. interviewing their director of research uh, next week, I think. Right. Uh, and all the more reason why what we should be doing as leaders, then, is having a look at the evidence and making decisions about what is in the interest of children and the teachers are going to be teaching them. So yeah, evidence is now, perhaps for the first time in my career, starting to be something which has become a benchmark of what we ought to be doing. And you see that's a good thing? And that's a good thing, of course. Mm. Yeah. Okay, my final question, Jeff, is uh, completely nothing to do with, <laughs> with leadership and what we've kind of already spoken a little bit about mm. radio geekery. So I noticed one of your, like an, an old article of yours has said that the more radio is expanded, the blander it's become. So I'm just wondering like, what prompted that statement, first of all? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, I've I mean, I've always had this interest in radio, going back to where we started with my desire to be Noel Edmonds. And and although that didn't happen, I've continued to to take a lot of interest in radio, both in the US, which is the radio I particularly used to like. And I do think that probably because of technology, and there's been a sense that radio has changed what it used to be. The whole notion of a disc jockey was the person who rode the discs, you know, who, by definition, who added something of value between songs. Now, in an age of an iPod, what, what do you want a DJ to do? Now, I think you could still find people who bring a sense of personality, who've got a story to tell you, which make you think that this is genuinely worth listening to and exciting. Mm. And one of the things we don't get from commercial radio is a lot of that, particularly music commercial radio. You get it on the talk stations. And I regret that because I think there is something about having someone who can say something about a song you've just heard or something in the news that's happened, 
which connects with people and makes radio more than just an iPod playlist. And uh, yeah, I, so I still I still crave radio that does that. Though at the same time, I listen to an iPod and I listen to you yeah. know mixes of music, and it's about choosing what you're in the mood for, I suppose. Excellent. So that was written. So 1995, I was. 15, I think, so I was doing my GCSEs, uh, and since then we've had basically the digital revolution, which has yeah. completely blown apart radio and yeah. all sorts of things. So, would you still write that statement now? Uh, and yeah, what would you still write that statement? Well, now? I think I think radio has be- has become blander. So I think if you if you listen to the, you know the hearts of this world, what what you are getting is a move away from local radio because you now got kind of nationally programmed stuff, semi capital and so on, and what technology allows them to do is to re-record the same messages so that it sounds like for me in Suffolk you're saying something personalised to me in Suffolk that is synthetic personalisation now if if that is playing well to its audience and people are enjoying that then you know I'm just a crusty old fart who should just <laughs> accept it um, but it would just be great if, if younger people continued to have opportunities to listen to people who use radio in a very creative way to tell you something change your opinion about something, help you understand something. Because ultimately, I think it is about communication as well as just listening to songs. See, I think about the radio that I grew up with, and it would have been Pirate Radio Station. Yeah. So Pirate Radio Station in London, because at that time, um, the music landscape was really different, and to get the kind of like urban music that I liked, you couldn't yeah. hear it on mainstream stations. Right. So it's very different now. Yeah. Um, and in some ways, digital has allowed for really niche right. tastes to be out there. So yeah. I think of someone like the Howard Stern show, yeah. definitely not bland. Yeah. <laughs> but That's right. again... Is quite niche, I suppose. Yeah. So there's opportunities yeah. there, I guess. But I see what you mean about the mass. I think so, and I think if we if we take audio in its broader form, so we talk about podcasts, for example, what we're getting now is an incredible richness of audio, and it might just be that I'm stuck in a you know a, a golden age of radio one and actually need to grow up a, a little <laughs> bit, and there isn't a market for it. But uh, it, it does show how how radio as a kind of form continues to be a really important thing for me which goes back to your point about being a listener as well as a talker I suppose Excellent Jeff thank you very much I've really enjoyed it thank you for your time Thank you Excellent and it's uh, that's it Hey people I love making this podcast if you enjoy listening to it as much as we enjoy making it there's a few things that you can do one subscribe. Press the subscribe button on iTunes or wherever you listen to it. Two, share. Share this episode with somebody who you know will find it interesting or is affected by the specific issues covered. Three, review. Write a review or leave a comment. Also feel free to contact us via the links on the show notes. Thanks a lot. Bye.